You're listening to the Q's Podcast, episode 24. Welcome to another episode of the Q's Podcast, where we'll talk to credit union industry leaders and cross-industry experts for a wide range of perspectives on trends and topics relevant to you. I'm your host, James Lenz, Q's Professional Development Manager. Before I introduce our guest for today, I want to tell you about one of our upcoming events you may want to consider attending. This year, Q's is rolling out a whole new take on our CEO Executive Team Network Conference, all based in your feedback. We're planning stronger, more structured sessions. We'll take a look at vital industry issues, then find solutions together in organized workshops. Be sure to visit Q's.org slash C-N-E-T to learn more. On today's episode, our special guest is Matt Fulbrook, manager of the Clarkson Center for Board Effectiveness at the Rotman School of Management, University of Toronto. Under his direction, the CCBE has evolved into one of the central hubs for governance research. The CCBE has studied credit union board effectiveness since 2007, focusing on the links between governance and performance, board renewal, strategy, and optimizing boardroom time allocation. Matt will serve as one of our four faculty members for the upcoming Q's Governance Leadership Institute. You may recall in episode 16, our guest was Richard Powers. He also serves as faculty at GLI. Some of the key issues investigated at the Governance Leadership Institute include strategy leadership development, effective board and management communications, risk management, negotiations, influencing change, and succession planning. The Q's Governance Leadership Institute takes place June 11th to the 14th of 2017 at the Rotman School of Management at the University of Toronto. For more information, visit qs.org slash GLI. My conversation with Matt Fulbrook centers around board compensation. Some of the key takeaways include an examination of trends and discussions related to board compensation, reasons for and against board compensation, and trends related to who and where boards are being compensated. Now it's time to go straight to my interview with Matt Fulbrook. Matt, thank you so much for being a guest in the Q's podcast. No, it's my pleasure. I'm looking forward to it, James. Now, Matt, uh, you're the manager of the Clarkson Center for Board Effectiveness at the Rotman School of Management at the University of Toronto. There's a couple things I want to chat with you today, and one is about your report that you did on board compensation. The other thing I wanted to chat with you about is the Q's Governance Leadership Institute. It's taking place this summer. It takes place June 11th to June 14th at the Rotman School of Management, the University of Toronto in Toronto, Ontario. What's interesting, in case our listeners do not know this, it was recently reported in the Financial Times that the Joseph Rotman School of Management is rated as the number one business school in Canada. And you are, of course, on that faculty and making that happen. Again, thanks for being here. Oh, no, it's great. And it's an amazing program. And I'm looking forward to our conversation. As manager of the Clarkson Center for Board Effectiveness, you have put a lot of effort and time and energy and research into understanding credit union board effectiveness. You've been doing that since 2007. What is the general focus that you've been working on? We've looked at credit unions from a lot of different angles. I mean, we look at boards in general from a lot of different angles. Really, the motivation of our work on governance is to try to understand what are the things that enable boards to make effective decisions? And what are the things on the flip side that might make it more difficult for boards to make good decisions? And we try to develop insights 
and tools that are useful to boards in order to optimize their effectiveness. And, and some of the studies that we've done on credit unions look at the connection between good governance and credit union performance. We've looked at effective approaches to board renewal, and we've looked at the uh, the slightly controversial topic of uh, of board compensation for credit unions in the United States. So we'll touch on that in just a second here. But first, can you just provide Matt a description of the spectrum? I mean, where do where do most boards fall in terms of education level involvement? So we when we look at boards, we sort of see them fall along a spectrum ranging from completely hands-off where the board really just exists as a rubber stamp and they don't really get involved in the nuts and bolts of decision making ranging all the way to the opposite end of the spectrum where you've got the board we call them managing boards they actually run the organization and those groups usually don't even have um, professional managers and so both of those extremes are or can be appropriate under different circumstances. But most boards, including most credit union boards, will fall somewhere in the middle where their role is more with respect to governance and oversight and strategic approval and overseeing the performance of management and and overseeing the performance of the organization, but not getting too deep into the day-to-day operations of the organization. So that brings up the point, Matt, what are the primary responsibilities for board members, including credit union boards? The responsibilities of boards are really, in a way, they're, they're kind of too numerous to actually list. And, and they, can, they can range from huge complex items to really simple routine items. But there are, we, we did a study a few years ago and we found that there were, out of that huge list of things, there's actually only three that every board in all sectors, regardless of size and complexity, they can all agree on. And those would be uh, the hiring and firing of the CEO, compensation of the CEO, and ultimately the approval of strategy, not the, the necessarily the setting or determination of strategic objectives, but at the very least to approve strategy. This, these are the three things that every single board seems to agree on, everything else is a little bit more controversial. Right. And it is a big responsibility that they have. And one of the topics already touched on was board compensation. You recently did a study on that. So what kind of trends have you seen over a period of time in terms of discussions and feelings about board compensation? Well, you mentioned the, the Governance Leadership Institute. When we, when we used to bring this up in the class nearly 10 years ago when we first offered the program, the, the participants in the room who are mostly uh, credit union board members, they would say to us that they, they are directly opposed to the very notion of compensating board members uh, of credit unions. And the sentiments really shifted since then, where in that same room now we'll have a majority. And, and in one case, one year, we had the entire room all supporting, at least in concept, the idea of compensating board members rather than having volunteer boards. Not all of them said they would vol- that they would compensate their own boards, but they all supported it philosophically. And that shift, we see it in the marketplace in the United States, where there's a few states who have recently changed their regulation to allow credit union boards to compensate their board members. And it's really this shift that prompted the study. We wanted to understand what are the trends in board compensation? What are the, the things that make it appealing or not appealing? 
And what are the circumstances under which boards choose to compensate? And to the extent that we can measure it, what are the outcomes of that choice? So those are some of the trends over the period of time. And with those discussions of feelings uh, arise a lot of support and feelings that are not in favor of compensation. So let's first talk about some of the reasons for support for board compensation. What kind of things are you seeing and hearing? Well, really, the the primary motivator in most cases for compensating board members, and this is whether it's credit unions or otherwise, is that you want to be able to attract the best people. So, you know, when you look at experienced board members or experienced executives, and those are really often the people that people want on their board, they're really busy. It's a very difficult job. And so when you're asking them to join a volunteer board, especially when the organization is as sophisticated and difficult and carries potentially as much liability as a credit union does, it's it's a lot to ask somebody to commit to be on a board when you're not paying them. And so the biggest thing or the most common reason why people support the idea of introducing director compensation for credit unions is that they want to be able to get the best people once you have those people, another reason why why boards seem to want to pay or when they want to pay, this is one of the reasons why they want to, is that they they want to be able to ask for as much as possible. It, it, again, being on a board is, is difficult and it's demanding and it's, you know, you have to you have to commit a huge amount of time and sometimes you need to ask for even more time. Well, boards feel a little bit more comfortable and confident to be able to ask their board members for more time when they're compensating them. You know, it also, it seems to, some boards really seem to believe like they can hold their directors to a greater level of accountability. So for example, if someone's not fulfilling their duties to the the satisfaction of the rest of the board, it seems to be easier to hold that director accountable when they're being paid, or at least that's how boards feel. So these are the reasons why they're te- why credit union boards tell us that they'd like to be able to compensate their directors. Good, good thoughts there. Then, of course, we have the opposite side. What are some thoughts and feelings for you know that are against board compensation? The, the the first one that most people tell us is that they they're nervous if you start paying board members that they're never going to leave that they're gonna they're gonna stick around forever because they're there for the money. So we, we call that entrenchment. Um, I, I'm, I'm not so sold on that one. I, I mean, if we look at credit union boards in the United States and they are among the longest tenured board members of any sector, whether they're volunteer or paid. Uh, so, I mean, I, Interesting. I, I don't think that, I think that, that in reality, compensating board members is not what's going to cause entrenchment. But nonetheless, this is one of the concerns that's expressed. Um, another one is that the um, credit unions believe that there's a risk that every step that they take that makes them similar to banks puts their tax exempt, exempt status at risk, right? So that if everything that they can do to maintain the uniqueness that they've got is something that they want to hold on to. So they're worried that if they start paying their directors, that it puts them one step closer to being like banks and to ultimately losing tax exempt status. And the other thing is that it sort of feels like it's counter to the cooperative philosophy, right? We've got people who sort of believe that volunteerism is a core piece of the credit union movement and that paying board members sort of undermines the entire philosophical core 
of the credit union system. Are there any other fears related to transitioning from a volunteer board? In 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 the sense like moving from from volunteer to paid? Yeah, sorry. Yes. So, yeah, I mean it's it's there's another piece that we see which is that the shift that you that that sometimes you see when you're when you're moving from we call sort of a volunteer board to what some people are are now calling a professional board which is a board that's based entirely on skills and not so focused in the credit union system on on being representative of members is that you lose that connection to the membership and we see that there's sometimes a little bit of a divide between these two approaches where on the one hand you want to go out and you want to identify the best people you can, the deepest skill set that you can. And on the other hand, you want to make sure that you've got people on your board who accurately reflect the reality of your members. And sometimes those two things are a little bit difficult to balance. And there's definitely fear that gets articulated by boards when they're shifting from, from a volunteer board to a paid board that they're worried they might lose a little bit of that connection to the membership. In your report, should credit unions pay directors? You touched on an area of trying to find trends and patterns related to size, performance, and board characteristics. And of course, we're talking about paying board members. What kind of things did you find there? Let me tell you a little bit of the methodology of the study first. What we did is we looked at, at the time, I believe there were 12 states that where where your where credit unions were allowed to compensate their boards. So federally chartered credit unions currently are not allowed to compensate their boards. They're allowed to compensate one board member and that's it. And most state chartered credit unions are not allowed to compensate except for in these 12 states. And what we did is we looked at their tax filings where we can identify first of all our board members being paid, but second of all how much and what are some of the other performance criteria around these credit unions and the size of the credit unions and all that. So what we did was we found that credit unions that in those states where you're allowed to pay, if you did pay, you tended to be a larger credit union. So it was about three times larger, I believe, on average, are the, the credit unions that pay their boards compared to the ones that have volunteer boards. Now, that doesn't mean that, that only large Credit unions paid their boards. In fact, I, th I believe one of the, the boards that paid, I can't remember where it was, but they were just over $2 million in assets. So it's not very, not very big at all. So it's not only big ones that pay, but for the most part, they tend to be much larger. Not only that, but among the ones that do pay, the ones that are larger tend to pay a lot more. Now, the, pay, the amounts paid overall tend to be very small in general, but it, it, you're more likely to pay more if the credit union is larger. And the other thing that we found is we looked at financial performance, or specifically return on average assets, and we found that credit unions with paid boards had a slightly higher return on average assets than those with volunteer boards. Now, I'm not trying to say that paying your board causes better performance, and I'm not trying to say that it doesn't. Uh, we just don't didn't have enough data, but I think an important takeaway from this is that if you're if you're nervous that Paying your board causes lower performance. This is at least a little bit of data that suggests that it's not going to kill you if you pay your board. Where are credit unions most likely to pay their boards in the United States and Canada? 
In Canada, it's actually very common. In fact, it's the norm for credit union boards to be paid. Typically, the amounts aren't very large, but it's it's quite rare for there to be volunteer credit union boards in Canada. In the U.S., as I said, there are only a, a, about a dozen states where compensation is allowed in the first place. And within those states, it's still a majority of credit unions, state chartered credit unions, that they still are volunteer boards. So it, the I believe... Minnesota was the one state where we found the highest proportion of paid boards. It was close to half of the credit unions in Minnesota were paid at least a little bit. Um, but for the most part, the rest of the states that are allowed to compensate, a large majority of credit unions still did not compensate. So where do, I don't I think you may have touched on this, but where do credit unions pay the most and the least? In terms of a dollar amounts, the average, it, we looked at, at, average pay amounts and and in indiana the average pay amount for this is for boards that that get paid so you got to remember that most boards are still volunteer yeah. boards but among the boards that do pay right indiana paid uh, more than or credit unions in indiana directors were paid i think it was around twelve thousand a year compared to tennessee at the bottom where where the average was under a thousand dollars i think it was something like seven hundred dollars a year or something like that the uh this is only looking at the directors that did get paid because there's still on some of these boards, even where you're allowed to pay, there's still sometimes individual board members are still volunteers. Interesting. We, we found something really interesting actually when we, when we did interviews with some of the board members following up on this report is we, we came across some board members where even though their credit union paid their board members, offered compensation to board members, these individual directors refused to accept pay just because they felt philosophically opposed and they believed that they should be volunteers. And so we, you know, it's still, it's a very complicated issue still. Very dynamic, very interesting. Wow, thanks for sharing that. Matt, have you seen any differences in pay in relation to chairs, board officers, and directors? Yeah, so the the average when we look across all of the board, the paid boards that we found, um, the average board member is being paid just over four thousand dollars a year. So it's really not very much at all. Um, and the average chair was being paid around sixty five hundred dollars a year. So it's more, but we're still not talking. You know, you're not making a, a living off this stuff. Um, and in fact, the the treasurers. Mm-hmm when they got paid, tended to be, on average, the highest paid officer in the room. They would get paid just over $9,000 on average. But again, we're talking, you know, when you look at this sample, we're talking really pretty small amounts. So how does this compare with the private sector? Well, we spend a lot of time looking at the boards of, of public issuers in Canada, and the directors in Canada make even less than they do in the States. But if we look at, say, the big banks in Canada, uh, every board member is getting paid somewhere between one hundred and fifty dollars and $200,000 a year, right? So this is that it is very good money for directors sitting on the boards of banks. Um, and if you compare the 4200 or whatever it is that the average credit union director is making, or... For the most part, they're volunteers. Right. Um, there's no comparison. Right. Interesting. So what are the benefits and risks of all this, you know, in discussion of board compensation? Well, I, I would argue that the benefits and risks are pretty 
unique to each credit union situation, right? So the way that I would think about it is if you're, a, if, if you're on a board or if you are a board of a credit union in a state where you're allowed to compensate your board and you want to have a conversation about whether or not it's appropriate to offer compensation to your board members, if you consider the potential access that you might have to new skills, to better directors maybe, to ask people to spend more time, whatever it is that you're hoping to achieve by paying. And if you consider whether or not the cost of paying a board is material to you and it, and it turns out that it's not and you really believe that, that it's going to add value to your members, then it, I would argue that it's in fact your duty as a board to compensate your directors in order to enhance the value of the decisions that you're making for your members. If, on the other hand, you believe that it's too much of a risk in terms of maybe you believe it will erode philosophically the, the value that you can, you can provide to directors, or maybe you really do believe that it's going to cause entrenchment of your directors, um, whatever it is that you, you consider, if you look at all sides and ultimately you believe that it's not in the best interests of your members, then it's your duty not to compensate your board. So I, I really believe that the the benefits and risks are truly unique to each credit union situation and must be deeply considered and discussed. But at the moment, we've still only got, I think now, 14 states where, where state chartered credit unions are allowed to compensate and none of the federally chartered credit unions are allowed. So it's a moot point for most credit unions. So with the potential increase in board compensation and that trend that we're seeing, could that put a new magnifying glass on their work and as a result, create a, a greater need for professional development? I think in one sense, yes. I think in the sense that, you know, directors, directors seem to, to, um, react in slightly different ways when there's when there's pay on the table in the sense that you know that everyone everyone's commitment is slightly different not better or worse but their commitment to a paid position is a little bit different than their commitment to a volunteer position and so and and different people with different personalities react more powerfully to one than the other but um i think that that you tend when there's a little bit higher expectation, a little bit higher accountability, which is something that the paid boards do articulate to us exists. And it's tough to measure, but this is what they say. Then certainly the internal scrutiny is a little bit higher. That said, I'm not so sure that you can expect greater, greater scrutiny from regulators, for example, unless there's a major problem. Um, and I don't know that you could really even expect much greater scrutiny from members again unless there's a major problem right it, it, what i think would happen is if you've got if you've started compensating your board and there's a a failure or there's a governance problem then at that point there's a little bit more at stake and you've got to uh, be a little bit more you've got to hold yourself more accountable to the reactions of regulators and members and the marketplace interesting now, Matt, you are on the staff for the Q's Governance Leadership Institute. For those who are considering traveling to the Rotman School of Management at the University of Toronto and attending this institute, can you provide some, some background for those who are considering this? Yeah, so this is, I mean, it's a really fun program. You, you, in the room are 
board members and senior managers from credit unions in the U.S., in Canada, and sometimes from the Caribbean. And we go through everything from the fundamental duties and roles and responsibilities and liabilities of a director in the credit union context and build on that throughout three days so that we get into the the nuances around decision making and how as a group do you make effective decisions and we talk about the unique challenges of credit union governance and credit union boards and go through some research to illustrate some of the interesting trends there. There's a bunch of really cool case studies that we work through in groups. And ultimately, in the end, what the goal is, is to, to equip the participants to be more engaged and more effective contributors to their organizations. Wow, nice. Matt, thank you so much. Oh, there's one more topic, Matt. Uh, and I'm recording this in Green Bay, Wisconsin. I have to say, I have heard about... You, your band, you know, you can't always do uh, research on corporate governance 100% of your day, right? So there has to be some time where you are doing something different. You are have a very special skill. You are a bass player for one of the top groups in Toronto. Tell me about that. Wow. No, thanks for asking, James. Yeah, I am uh, I am so spoiled. In addition to, to spending all my time working with boards of directors, which is a wonderful, wonderful way to spend my career, I um I play bass as you say in a, in a seven piece band in Toronto called Casey Roberts and the Live Revolution. Uh, we're a funk band. We uh, we're a touring original act. We've just put out our seventh record last year, um, wow. and you know we just we I spend a huge amount of my time and passion doing that. And it's you know I'm just so as I say I'm so spoiled that I get to do this. Wow, two incredible passions. That's awesome. Hope we get a chance to, to listen to your group sometime. Thanks for sharing, and it's good to share this with our listeners. It's good to have one of our uh, leaders in the credit union industry uh, out there and playing. That's awesome. Matt, thank you very much for taking part uh, out of your day to be a featured guest here in the Q's podcast. It means a lot to us. Thank you very much. Well, thanks for the support. Thank you once again for listening to this podcast from Q's. If you would like to listen to another renowned GLI faculty member and faculty of the Rotman School of Management at the University of Toronto, you'll want to check out episode 16, Empowering Ethical Board Decisions, an interview with Richard Powers. If you're looking for more information on the Q's Governance Leadership Institute, visit qs.org slash GLI. For more talent content from Q's, visit qs.org now. If you're a member, you have access to invaluable benefits to further enhance your development. Visit cues.org slash membership to learn more. Cues is an international credit union association. Our mission is to educate and develop credit union CEOs, directors, and future leaders. To learn how Cues can help you realize your potential, visit cues.org today. <laughs>